counseling since January. And so if, if you're one of those people, I really do want to meet you, and I'm not avoiding you on purpose, and I don't want you to avoid me on purpose. But this morning, we're wrapping up a sermon series. We've been looking at this bundle of chapters toward the end of John, and we're going to conclude with John chapter 17, beginning in verse 20. If, um, if you don't have a Bible, you can just read the bulletin. Passage is there. It's fairly short this morning, John 17, beginning in verse 20. <clears throat> you know, sometimes uh, you go on vacation, and you come back, and... <clears throat> You say to family or friends or whatever, I feel like I need to go on vacation after my vacation. I'm so tired from my vacation. But then sometimes you go on a vacation, you really feel like, man, that actually did me good. I feel better <clears throat> Excuse me, than when I left. And I'd have to say this past June, when our family took some time off, I had, I had that experience. I came back and said, I, I feel better. I feel like I rested. And uh, one thing that made that week really great was I slept well that that week. And uh, I know some of you have talked with me about you struggle with sleep sometimes, and I struggle sometimes. But I really slept well that week. And I got back and I found out a couple of weeks after that that one of you, uh, actually someone here right now, had prayed, had prayed for me that week for my sleep. And that's not a veiled rebuke for all of you who did not pray for my sleep that week, just to let you know there's no subtext to that. But um, but I thought, man, that, that was so kind. That was so thoughtful that somebody, not just pray for me to even think to pray for me, but like something very specific that, that I need. And I, I want you to bring that, that category to this passage because we're wrapping up this series, the, these chapters in John where it's, I mean, Jesus is going to be arrested very shortly. He's going to be crucified the next day in his heart really comes out in his teaching, but in this chapter, in his prayer. And he prayed this as a real prayer. It's not a fake prayer, but he prayed it in front of his disciples where they could hear it, and one of them could even record it, John, the Apostle John. At the beginning, he prays for himself. That's what we looked at last week. And that was not an arrogant thing for him to do. What he prays for himself very much benefits us, his people. And then after that, he prays for the apostles. And um, a lot of things come out that had already come out in these, in these chapters, his heart for them. But what I want to look at this morning is him praying literally for us. He's praying for people who centuries later, we would even say millennia later, different continents who are going to come to believe in him through what the apostles spread around the world. And, and I want you to hear it that way of, man, not just, this is the Son of God praying for me and for us, but I really want you to give attention to, of all the things he could have prayed, what specifically in his love and knowing who we really are and where we struggle, what does he pray for us? Let's look at that. John chapter 17, beginning in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Amen. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we've opened up these chapters in John, we keep hearing your Son say that you sent Him, that He was sent by you. And Lord Jesus, we we thank you that you came. You came to the ones to whom you were sent. Father, we thank you for sending your precious son to us when it was going to end in cruelty and abuse for him because you love us. And Lord Jesus, thank you for praying for us. As we open your words now, we pray that by your spirit you'll open up your own prayer to us and open our hearts. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. A couple of times this summer, uh, some of you know we've had some forums here, uh, Sunday night forums here at Downtown Press to talk about Southern Presbyterianism and race. And at the first one we did uh, last month, one of, one of the guests who came is a man who grew up here and, uh, and ministers in the area, he's a Christian. He became a Christian when he was in prison. And... Um, on this first forum that we had, after, uh, after I had done some teaching, sat down and just asked any guests that came if they wanted to get up and share their hearts, um, especially guests who were not white, since we were talking about race, to uh, share their hearts, and, and, and quite a few did. It was really something. But uh, one of these guests shared that he became a Christian when he was in prison, and he had not grown up in the church. He had not been around us. He was truly unchurched. And so when he became a Christian, uh, when he was incarcerated, there were just all kinds of men there. I mean, just every race, every kind of background. And so he thought that's what Christianity was like. He thought that's what worship was like. He thought that was normal. So then he got out of prison, and he began going to church, and it was a completely different experience. And because he hadn't grown up in the church, he didn't know that. He didn't know that you have this church with this demographic and this kind of feel to it, and this church with this kind of demographic and this kind of feel to it. That was news to him, and it was very discouraging to him. Now, let me ask you this. If if you had been someone in his life, and you had encountered him when he's just first seeing that and learning that, and you were going to try to, like, encourage him, what would you say? And I want you to picture this exchange. I want you to picture that he comes out, very different experience than what he had in prison as a new Christian, 
where the body of Christ really looks like the body of Christ. And then comes out to see that churches don't feel like that for the most part. What if you did this? What if you said, hey, look, listen, I want to read you something from the Bible. Listen to this. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote about the church. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you recall, to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Look, man, we're already, the church is one. So don't worry about it. What would you think about that? Would that be a good word? Because what that seems like that would be similar to would be if you, let's say you had a couple, a married couple, and they are just, there's just a complete breach in their relationship. They live in separate rooms. They live separate lives. They live under the same roof. But different schedules, different aspirations, broken communication, different bank accounts. They just live separate lives, but they are still legally married. What if they sat down with a pastor and the pastor said to them, hey, look, don't worry about it because the Bible says that you're one flesh. If you're married, if you're not divorced, you're one flesh, so don't worry about it. Would that be a good word? You can be one and not live as if you're one. And that's unhealthy. That's very evident with that couple. But with the body of Christ, it's become the norm. And here's the tension, is that, thank you, Lord, there are now so many Christians in so many different places. There's so many Christians, even like in a city, a very church city like Greenville, South Carolina, we can't really all be in one place at one time. And we get that. I mean, like, we've got to have different places to gather and worship and work and do things. But our problem is that the norm for us and what we've become accustomed to is utter fragmentation. And I really, I want you to feel the way that when Jesus, I mean, he is just about to be arrested and the next day lay down his life for his people. And he is getting to the end of just, he's got just a few minutes left with these apostles pouring out his heart to these 11 apostles. And when he could have prayed anything, anything that he wanted for all these future people who are going to believe in the apostolic gospel, what does he pray? He prays that we would be one. When you think about, wow, what are the big problems of Christians? What are are the big problems of the church in America? What, what jumps to our mind first is typically not that we are so utterly fragmented and disconnected. And Jesus prays, Father, I want these people that you've given to me in the future who are going to believe in the gospel, who, who will never see me or have never seen me, I want them to not just on paper have, but like experience a oneness that is like the oneness between you and me. That's amazing. So let's look at this prayer. Uh, And I want to look at something before I look at what Jesus actually prays. I want to look first at who believers are, because this comes out in the prayer. And we looked at this recently about what is a saint, what is a believer, what is a Christian. Those are interchangeable terms. 
who believers are that comes out in the prayer, and then what does Jesus pray? I've already mentioned one of those. But first off, who believers are. And I'm going to say believers because look in verse 20. The way, the way Christ refers to this future generation of people, he says, for those who will believe in me through their word, through the apostles' word. So I'm just going to say believers. Who believers are. A couple of things here. First off, believers are people that are given to the Son by the Father. We're not talking about what do Christians do. We're talking about who are believers. Believers are people given to God the Son by God the Father. All right, look at this verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, these future believers, whom you have given me, may be with me. Now, Jesus talks that way more than once in the Gospel of John. And let me give you a a few examples here. This is from John chapter 6. This is after Jesus has just fed all the thousands of people with the bread and the fish. And this big crowd comes following him because they want more food and they saw that miracle. And so he's teaching them. But listen to some of the things he said. This is just in one chapter. John 6 verse 37. All that the Father gives me, he's talking about people, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. A few verses later, verse uh, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. A little bit later, verse 65, same chapter. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. In other words, Jesus speaks in terms of believers being people that God the Father, way, 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 way back, gave to Jesus. And here he is thousands of years ago, as it were, thinking ahead to the future and all the people in between saying, Father, that group that you've already given to me, I want them to be with us. They are the people that you've given to me. And other scriptures bear this out clearly, that plan A is that God gave particular people to his son to save them. Now, if you know the history of this discussion, you might be listening going, are you trying to make Jesus sound more like a Presbyterian? Okay, the goal is never to make Jesus to sound like a Presbyterian. The goal is always to get all the Presbyterians and the Baptists and the Methodists and everybody else to sound like Jesus. But he speaks in terms of believers are the people that the Father gives to me. If you're a Christian, have you ever thought about yourself that way? I'm given to Jesus. I'm not mine, I'm, I'm His. The Father gave me and gave us to him. What else does he say? Who are believers? Believers are people, and this is a category that we talk about sometimes. Believers are people who have what Jesus has. We're people that have what Jesus has. Look in verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. And we, looked, we talked about his glory last week. The things that Jesus says in this prayer are so revolutionary 
that it would almost sound like blasphemy if someone else said them. That the glory that God the Father gives me, Father, you've given to them. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them. Look at the next verse, verse 23. At the end of verse 23, that you have loved them even as you loved me. Now, that is good news. That people who haven't hit a certain level of obedience, they haven't jumped through some hoop that they're expected to jump through, people who simply believe the good news, that according to Jesus, they are the people that God loves the way He loves Jesus. They are people that share in the same glory that God gives to His own Son. And that's Jesus. And before we go any further, let me say this. What, if those things are true, what effect should that have on believers in Jesus? You know, there's, there's a, um, there was a great theologian that said this. There are two things that should humble believers in Jesus Christ. There's two things that should always humble you. The first is our sin, especially the ongoing sin in light of what we know. Our sin should humble us. But the second one, he said, are our gifts, that we should be humbled by the things that God gives us. If any of us are sitting here right now and we're able to say that I've believed in Jesus and because I've believed in Jesus according to him, I'm someone that God the Father gave to Jesus as a gift. And that the love that God the Father has for His Son, He has for me. And that the glory that God the Father gives to His Son, the Son gives that to me. If we're able to say that I have that right now, should we be arrogant? We of all people should be the humble people. That's not our reputation. Our sin should humble us. But God's unbelievable generosity and love should humble us. That's who believers are. What does Jesus pray? I've already mentioned the first one, but let's just go ahead and say it. And I want to look at a couple of things that he prays. The first is this, oneness. Oneness. Let me read these verses again because he's emphatic. He says, I'm not just praying for these apostles that I'm with right now, but I pray for all those who are going to believe, verse 21, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 22, the glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 23, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Now that is emphatic. Jesus prays that we're going to have oneness. And I want to say a couple of things about what that means. Because terms like unity get thrown around a lot, and sometimes we don't define what we mean by that. What kind of oneness are we talking about? First thing I want to say about it, the oneness is built around truth. It's built around what we would call the apostolic message, the apostolic gospel. Go back to verse 20 that we started with. He says, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. 
people who are going to believe in me through the gospel that the apostles preach and that some of them write. That's the basis for the unity. And the reason I'm harping on this is that I really felt like I got a front row seat to different expressions of unity when I was a campus minister. I was a, I was a, college, I was a campus minister before I came here. And unity was a huge rallying cry of like different campus ministries and different uh, ecumenical groups on campus. But when I felt like sometimes unity was never defined. If, if you're one, what is the thing that you're gathered around that you're all looking at going, that's what unites us? And typically what I saw on campus is that the thing that unites us is, is unity. Does that make sense? Like the thing that we're looking at going, yeah, that's what we're about. The thing itself was unity. That's not what Jesus talks about. I want you to have unity. Father, I want this for them as they are gathered around the apostolic gospel. The good news of who I am and that you sent me and what I've accomplished. That's the basis for it. Is the truth. But I don't want to just leave it there because, you know, that could, that could just seem like an abstraction. But Jesus prays for a truth, uh, for a oneness that's also, it's experienced. It's, it's not just this theological thing that you, buy, that you buy into. It's something that you actually experience. Listen to the kind of language he uses. Verse 21. That they may all be one... Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. Now, just stop for a second. Like, Father, what I'm praying is that what they're going to experience is like what we have. And boy, this this will push you to the edge of your mind. That, what's the doctrine of the Trinity? There's three persons, one God. And the mystery is the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. They are two distinct persons. They are not two different gods. One God. Again, like if smoke starts to come out of your ears, it's supposed to. That's what the doctrine of the Trinity does. But Jesus is praying, Father, we're distinct. We are utterly one. And I want these people in the future who are going to believe what the apostles preach and write, I want them to experience like what we have. Look at verse 23. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Look down in verse 26 at the very end. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And by the way, I, I, I don't want this to sound snarky or too harsh, but when you hear someone say, I, you know, I, I, I do believe, but I'm very private about my faith, that just seems so implausible when you read those kind of verses. I don't have any particular person in mind. I'm not saying that everybody has to, to preach on the street corner. I don't preach on the street corner. But for Jesus to say this connection, this oneness, this flowing of love and honor between us, 
like what we have, Father, I want that to happen between them. And in the way that you are in me and I'm in you, I want to be in them and I want them to be us and connected with one another. In their experience. It's something different than what most of us are doing. When Jesus prays this, okay, let's say that Christians do tap into that at some level. Let's say that for all the, you know, for all the ways that we don't do this, let's say that some Christians actually do across cultural barriers, barriers of preference, economic differences, let's say uh, geographic distances, let's say different kinds of Christians really, whether it's through worship or co-labor or just their relationships, the way they honor each other, that they tap into this oneness. What does Jesus expect is going to happen if that happens? And he says it in the prayer twice. Father, I want you to do this so that something's going to happen. What is it? All right, look at what he says. Verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, and me, I and you, that they also may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you've sent me. Look in verse 23. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be very particular here. And if you're, if, if you're new to downtown prayers, you're just going to have to take my word for it. I try not to make sermons opportunities to, like, drum up some program or thing that we're doing. But I'm going to, like, be really specific. In a few weeks, on a Sunday evening, September 18th, oh, two weeks. It's September. Whew. In two weeks, uh, Sunday evening, we're going to have a joint worship service here with Tabernacle Baptist Church, very close to where we are. It's right across from the Wittenberg School. Uh, It is as African-American as we are white. And I want to throw out sort of a, a weird suggestion to you. If you have a friend who maybe is seeking or is maybe open to looking at the claims of Jesus, maybe learning more about the Bible that you've been wanting to invite to something, but you you haven't been sure what to invite them to. Is that church service going to rub them the wrong way, or is that Bible study going to rub them the wrong way? I know you have to ask those kind of questions, but let me throw out a suggestion. What if you brought that friend or that neighbor to that service? Because according to Jesus, one of the most powerful outreach things that would that would enable people to see that they need to believe that God the Father sent Jesus. One of the most powerful signals that can be sent is when people that wouldn't naturally be together are one. And I, I don't know exactly all the specifics of how that service is going to go, but what, and you know, if all of you show up, we won't have room, so I don't know how God's going to work all that out. But for whoever comes... We're going to sing to the same Lord. And we're going to gather around the same gospel. We're not going to come here and gather around, wow, look at our unity, maximum awesomeness. Look how unified we are. We're going to be gathered together looking at Christ and the good news. And we're going to sing to Him and we're going to hear from Him. Dr. Davis is going to preach that gospel. And we're going to gather as brothers and sisters around the table because it's His table 
for his people, not just for Presbyterians, his people. And what if this happened? What if you bring that friend or that coworker and they watch that and they know this is something than like just the latest diversity initiative? This is different. Like that might be the most powerful thing you could do to convey to somebody God the Father really did send God the Son. And I'm not saying that to like drum up our programs. I'm saying I want to be specific because it is hard for us to figure out how to apply this. I mean, for you, maybe if your heart beats for some way to minister in this city is something that you feel burdened about, something that you think about and you dream of like, wow, what if we could get such and such going in the city of Greenville? I'd say first and foremost, if there are brothers and sisters in this church that you can lock arms with and do that, do that. But don't limit yourself to just Presbyterians. If there are ways for you to lock arms with other kinds of people, other church traditions, other worship traditions, to lock arms with them in the name of Christ and do things, do that. I I want you to hear us not squelching that, but like cheering you on to do that and fanning that flame. Some of you have children. Wouldn't it be great if over the years, maybe maybe on vacation, maybe when you're in some other city on a Sunday, take them to different kinds of churches that are very different than what we do. Now, take them where they'll hear the gospel. Don't just go try to find the weirdest situation you can find because they're out there. Um, thinking about when some um, acquaintances of mine tried to, they were working at a summer camp and they overslept to go to the church they meant to and they went to another church and it was an actual snake handling church. So, yeah, you can find it if you want to. But to go somewhere that preaches the apostolic gospel, but worship is different and the room looks different, because you know what that's going to model to your children? Yeah, we're Presbyterian. But, like, the thing that we want the world to embrace is not Presbyterianism. We want the world to embrace Jesus Christ. uh, Jesus prays one other thing. And that's for what I'm going to call a view. A specific view. Uh, Look in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am... Why? To see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. I'm going to read that one more time. I want them to be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Uh, sometime, uh, sometime in the last year, I got a free trial to... Ancestry.com, you know, that online thing where you can look up family history. And so it's like a 10-day trial. So I just gorged on Ancestry.com for 10 days, looked up everything I could about our family, and then, of course, didn't, didn't pay for the subscription. But uh, I was working on my, my family's, uh, my wife's family's history. Dana's maiden name is Freeman. She was a Freeman. And so I started going back. And I think her family had only gone back to, like, maybe great-grandparents, but I just started going back. And I found out that her, now I looked this up before I came here, her great, 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 great grandparents were buried in Noonan, Georgia. It's like just southwest of Atlanta, right off, right off the interstate. 
So lo and behold, this past June, I was driving somewhere, and I needed to spend the night in Noonan, and I thought, I'm going to go try to track down those, uh, those graves. And it was in the oldest, you know, cemetery plot, kind of like where this old, like a city block, the whole thing's a cemetery. So I pulled in there, and I realized, I, you know, I might look here for two hours and not find this thing, but I pulled in just a little main drag that went right through the middle of the cemetery, and then I looked over in the right, and there's this plot that said, Freeman. And I thought, it, no, it can't be that easy. So I pull over. And I walked right to it. And so I found them. And it was, it, was the kind of, uh, it was the kind of grave markers where instead of the headstone being like this, it was flat on the ground. And those erode more quickly. And so I found the names. I knew I had the right ones. I called Dana. And, uh, but I couldn't read the epitaph, like the little inscription. So I thought, I wonder if I come back. It was overcast. I thought, I wonder if I come back in the morning, if the sun hits it, if I could read that. So I came back the next morning, and it worked. I felt like Indiana Jones that I figured that out. And I, I got to tell you, both of these epitaphs, for her, for the, for her great, 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 great grandfather, Samuel Freeman, it said, um, in, his, in his life, he was an epistle of Christ known and read by all men. I thought, man the Habigs need to up their game on their graves because we don't have anything that good. But then I got to his wife, Sarah Ann Freeman, and it was a verse from John. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you the background of the verse before I tell it to you. It's, it's what Jesus said to doubting Thomas after Thomas stopped doubting. You know, Thomas said, he didn't see Jesus when he was first resurrected. And he said, well, unless I put my finger where the nails were, my hand in his side, then I'm not going to believe. So Jesus does appear and he says, put your finger there, put your hand there. Don't disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus says to him, do you now believe? Because you've done that. And then the next thing he said was her epitaph. And it said, blessed are those who, though they have not seen yet have believed. Blessed are those who, though they have not seen, yet have believed. Now, here's what's amazing. Jesus pronounced a benediction on people like us who've never physically seen him but believe in him. And I love that, but it's still hard. Like, it is hard when you hurt and you live in a fallen world that just grinds on you, whether the grind right now feels like caring for children or dealing with sick people or dealing with your own illness or unemployment or addiction or strained family relationships or whatever. It is tough when that just grinds on you day after day after day and you don't know how long you're going to live and you don't know how long you're going to have to go, go through this grind, and you feel like, I want to see Jesus. If I could get three minutes with him, and he could just say, okay, look, just grab me by the shoulders and say, look, everything that you've read is true, and I'm right here, and I want you to keep going. Like, what? That would sustain me till I die. But he doesn't give that. But in his prayer, here's what he's saying to us. He's saying, okay, look, you're not going to have that yet. 
but you are going to have that. That attack is interesting. The way Jesus' prayer ends is the way the Bible ends. With people staring at Jesus. And what is it going to be like when you finally see someone who, I, I don't know how to describe this, who is the God whose image we bear, who is the God who made us, who's the God who's the answer to why my heart is just hungry and looking and searching and wandering off. It wants something, it wants something, it wants something. He is the God that my heart craves and looks for and messes up and looks in all the wrong places, but desires and craves. He is God, and He's man. But He's, this is tortured English, He's so man, He's so actually there that you could like extend your finger and it would stop on His chest. There's a man there. You know what? John actually says what will happen when you see that. Want to hear it? This is in John's letter, 1 John 3. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And this is a mystery that I can't explain, but when normal mortals who believe in Jesus, when they finally see Him and don't have to live by faith, but now live by sight, it will transform our bodies and our souls so that we become like Him. Why would Jesus pray that failures would get to experience that? because He loves us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, please take now Your Word. Push it deep into our hearts. We pray that we would be struck, even this morning, by the fact that You you pray these things and You promise these things not for people who attain great things, but for those who simply believe the good news. Thank You that You want us to be one. Grant us repentance. Help us to to know how to be one. Act like it. Thank You for praying that we'll see Your glory and that Your prayer will be answered. And it's in Your name that we pray. Amen.